We've been in series on the prodigal son, and even though I've kept saying the Bible never calls it the prodigal son, Jesus calls it the story of a certain man with two sons. And the prodigal son, the first son was a rebellious son, second son was a religious son. And I believe with all my heart that the story of the second son is far more prevalent to this culture. So many of you, if you have not been here for the last two weeks, and if you're visiting with us, I trust that you feel welcome. But if some of this doesn't have context for you, it's just because you weren't here for the last two weeks. But I have found, I've been a little bit surprised at the response to the message last week. And just the people finding it very, very helpful. Just with defining religion and what religion can do. And so, I want to continue with that. But just to, once again, lay a groundwork, a platform. Jesus came to deal with sin. We know that. He came to deal with sin. He came to pay the penalty for sin, but it, it was not just to pay the penalty for sin. He came to deal with that to remove the impediment so that we could have access, personal access to our Father. Would you agree? And so he came to reveal the Father, and constantly he was talking about this kingdom. My kingdom is like this. The kingdom is like this. Because the way the people in the Scripture, they had a certain lens of God the Father, and the way they understood him was not how he, who he really was. And so Jesus comes along and says, you have to understand what my Father's like. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because I'm about to give you access to him. And people are not going to have access to someone that they're terrified of. Hello? So he's constantly revealing the Father. It's why he said he came. It's one of the reasons he said he came. So the story is about a father and two sons, and it's in a shame and honor society. And I know some of you were here the last two weeks, and you know what I'm saying. I encourage you to go listen if you were not, because it'll help you. Not because I preached it, because it's the Word of God. But in a shame and honor society, I don't know if we can fully understand what some of those things meant. But Luke 15, verse 1 and 2 says this, All the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, to hear him, that's to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them, so he spoke a parable to them. And the parable he spoke was the parable of the lost sheep, then the parable of the lost coin, and then a parable of the lost son. But it's a, a story of a certain man with two sons. And the religious leaders of the day were disgusted that he sat with sinners and ate with them, because in the Jewish world, to eat with someone was to show full acceptance of who they were. doesn't mean to become like. It means to love regardless of how they are like. And they couldn't fathom that, because it was not part of their religious world. And so they were actually quite indignant, disgusted with this. And so the story of the parable, the parable of the prodigal son, the story of the man with two sons, is a response actually to the religious system. I said this last week, it's a, it's a very powerful story, very powerful. And I shared again last week that it is a very personal story to me because I've been both. I've been the rebellious son and I've been the religious son. I've been the one who went from rebellion into religion and got clouded by the system and, and we forget God really. And it becomes about going to church and checking boxes and so forth. Who's been there before? Who knows what I'm talking about? Wonderful. I pray that this brings freedom to you. I genuinely do. I genuinely do. So when I use the word religion, just for the visitors, the religion is not a bad word, obviously. The Bible says pure religion is to look after widows and orphans. But I'm talking about form without life. 
like a corpse. There's no, the body's there, but there's no life in it. It's a structure without fellowship. It's, it's, we're just checking the boxes. It's activity without transformation. It's just going through the motions, but there's no conviction. There's no love. There's no power. There's no life in it. And it's like a religious form, a religious system. So let's just read the whole story. Can we do that? Why not? We have so much spare time. I'd rather read the word, to be honest. So Luke 15, verse 11 says, A certain man had two sons. Remember, it's in the response to their disgust how he was with sinners. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So he spent all there, arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that, would, that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to himself, he said, How many of the father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I will perish with hunger? So I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't understand that sonship is by birth, not by behavior. It's a big point. Well done, Claire. That was a great point. Make, make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I said again, the word there fell on his neck. The phrase there is the same word when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2. It was the kiss of the Father upon people that had access to it. We have to understand that. He says, verse 22, But the Father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. The ring on his hand was like a credit card. I've explained all of this. See, the kingdom doesn't operate like we do. The kingdom, this Father is not like our Father. Now, I have a great father, but not like any earthly father. Because he gives the son a credit card after he's wasted all his money. Because the kingdom operates differently. He says, and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. Verse 25, now his older son was in the field. This is the parable or the story of the older son, the religious system. And I genuinely believe with all my heart this is far more prevalent to this culture. And he came and drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing. <laughs> so he called one of the servants and said, what are these, what's going on? As we said last, religion is joyless. When you're stuck in a religious system, it, it, the joy is gone. It's just a joyless system. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I've been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you have never given me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, who killed the fatted calf for him. And he said, the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And so today, I, I'm hoping 
uh, we won't get finished we, with the time, but I'm, I'm hoping to finish a little bit of last week is what religion can do. And, and again, if you're visiting, I'm not talking about a religion. I'm talking about religious thinking, religious efforts, religious stuff that has no power, it's no life, there's no relationship in it. And we get stuck in that all the time. And it's my passion, it's my heart to build a culture here of people that actually know God. Because Christ opened everything. He opened the way for us to have access. And God desires personal relationship with people. And it costs Jesus everything to provide it. And so that's my heart saying, Lord, your people don't know you. They don't know that you're good. You know, they, they, they blame you for a whole lot of things that you didn't do. And it's because we don't know him. The Bible even says that you cannot teach the fear of God by the commandment of men. You know, it's difficult to go to a generation and say, you need to fear the Lord. You cannot actually teach a generation to fear the Lord. Huh. Who of you grew up in church? Wow, okay. Who of you were pastor's kids? Wow, look around, wow. Yeah, I'm talking to you guys. Because I'm like you. Because you only fear the Lord in a healthy way when you've met him, when you know him, when you have experienced him. What did we say last week? Religion is joyless. Religion, the religious system, creates positional identity in a religious system. Religion values the traditional structure more than those inside of it. Is that to be true? Religion makes service a task, service in the kingdom, service in the local church, service in your family. It makes it a task rather than the delight and the response of a son. Religion celebrates wage over inheritance. Because, friends, when a son operates as a slave, and I'm meaning a slave mindset, in a father's house, it actually restricts the father from blessing him because he will not reinforce an unhealthy identity in his son. Saying, if you're going to operate like a slave and then you want my reward, I cannot actually bless you because I'm training you to tell you that's what you need to do to get my attention. So it's interesting to me that after all the years that this, because he said, son, you're always with me. After all the years, he still didn't understand his father's heart. It's like coming to church year after year, week after week, but never actually accessing and, and having genuine relationship and learning the heart of the Father, the Father God, and He loves you, and He's good. And that's what happens in a religious system. So I'm just going to continue to the next point as if we've been here all week, and we're good with that, right? Yes, we are. Thank you. Great, great conversation. Point six, just to continue from last week. Religion forgets the dream. That's what religion does. It forgets the dream. What do I mean by that? This guy comes in and he says, the son of yours, it's his brother. See, Mark 8, 15 says, Jesus speaking, take heed or watch out. Watch out is the way we would say it. We don't say to our child, take heed in the street. It's just, we say, watch out, okay? Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is he talking about? The Pharisees, religious spirit, Herod, political spirit. He's saying beware of the religious spirit and the political spirit because only a little will infect your whole life. It only takes a little to change the outcome of that whole loaf 
It only takes a little, and it winds its way in. And I love the church. I love this church. I love the body of Christ because I love Him. But I'm also honest about sometimes where the church is at. And there's much of this in the church. But we love the church. It's like going to a person and saying, I love you, but I don't like your wife. You know, it's not going to go so well for you. Your relationship with that man is not going to do well. And so some people have abandoned the church because they've been hurt by the church. No, we love the church. But we go into the church and we start to beautify and adorn the bride because it's his bride. But religion causes people to forget the dream. How do you identify the religious spirit? The religious spirit, it removes itself from the company of sinners. That's who he's speaking to, Pharisees that want him to do that. So that because they don't want to be associated with him. Why? So they appear separate and above. Who knows what I'm talking about? All right. The political spirit, like Pilate, washes their hands of situations to distance themselves from association or outcome. Why? So they appear separate above and also not responsible. That's the religious and political spirit. It's exactly what's going on here. It's what's going on here, friends. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees who are disgusted with, with how he's treating and sitting with sinners. And he tells a story about a brother who won't even call his brother his brother. The brother distances himself from association. Why? It's the religious spirit at work. He doesn't want his brother's reputation to stain his. It's in the church all the time. It's not the heart of the Father. Being blinded by religion causes anger and offense to rise against others when they don't place the same value on the things that we do. At least not in the way that we think they should. How can you not value hard work? How can you not value the inheritance Dad gave you? How can you not? How? So we have certain values that we've developed. And it creates a lens through religion by which we see others. And we associate or disassociate ourselves with people. That's a religious spirit at work. I hope this is not causing guilt. What I'm trying to do, what my, the passion of my heart is to reveal to you how good our Father is. And that we have access. I saw a meme on the, what do they call that stuff? Social media. I'm not very good at social media. I saw a meme that it says the difference between religion and the gospel is religion says, I messed up, my dad's going to kill me. Now, I remember, you said that as a teenager. The gospel says, I messed up, I better call my dad. Totally different world. Totally different world. And this is exactly what's, hap what's happening. The second brother had moved so far from the point of the farm or the vineyard or whatever that family had that he had forgotten the dream. What is the dream? A family. Sitting there with the grandchildren, with your children, looking at what you've done. It's the family. It's the point of the farm. It's the point of the vineyard. But religion caused the son to value the structure more than the people in it. To such a degree, he couldn't even acknowledge who his brother was. And it becomes about the work. Leaders, friends, leaders, Christian leaders, often forget that it's really just about working the vineyard with my dad because he has a vineyard. That's the farm. That's leadership. I'm working the vineyard with my dad. But when it becomes more about the vineyard than it being about with my father, then trouble starts. And we start abusing the vineyard, but they have tender grapes, the Bible says. His people are 
tender people. And we start abusing the vineyard because we want the vineyard to look a certain way and we've forgotten we're actually just working the vineyard with my dad. Friends, religion forgets the dream. Uh, when you first got saved, for those of you who are saved, and if those of you who are not, we should sort that out today. When you first got saved, God put a dream in your heart. And religion makes us forget it. You know, when he ran out to you, like he did his first son, when he put a ring on your finger, when you felt the robe of righteousness on your back, you felt clean for the first time. You felt free for the first time. You felt loved for the first time. And a dream was put in your heart. Something changed. Religion causes you to forget that dream and doubt his affection for you. When he fell on your neck and kissed you, when the first time you stepped out, gee, God's given us actually authority. I have authority because of my birth. Religion says, no, you have to earn that. <laughs> and he says, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots? It's interesting to me that the second son never calls either of the son's inheritances theirs. Still calls it his dad's. He's devoured your livelihood with harlots. He has misunderstood inheritance completely. I can see the father saying, my, my livelihood? I gave it to him. It wasn't mine anymore. I cannot demand retribution for what doesn't belong to me. All I know is that I had a son who came back. <laughs> All I know is that I, I got to restore a son. And then he says to the son, it was right. It's, it's fascinating to me. He said it was right, but we'll get on to that. He says, all I have is yours. So the last point to finish last week was, all I have is yours. You see, the first week I said with the first son, rebellion always squanders what somebody else paid for. Always. Always. That's what it does. I know, because I did it. But religion always causes us to try and earn what has already been given. That's what religion does. It causes us to try and earn what has already been given. He says, all that I have is yours. He says to the son, it was right. King James says meat. It means necessity. Necessary. Not like, oh, we should have done it. No. It means it's the right thing to do of necessity in our desire. That's what the Greek means. And so he says to the son who stood there and declared, I have always done what's right. Think about it. That's what the son is saying. I've always done the right thing. And he has to stand there as the loving father and tell that son, this is actually what's right. Because you've been so built around looking after the vineyard, built around yourself and position and identity and all these things in the religious system, you've actually forgotten a dream. Your brother is always going to be your brother. He's always going to be your family. This is right. That, that's all good. But this is actually what's right. Because sometimes, so badly wanting to do the right thing that you've forgotten the dream. Why? Because working with a performance mindset is causing the son to desire the reward that his father would give him. You've never given me a young goat and I've done always what's right. You've never given me something that I've earned. He says, son, it's always been yours. What I've actually been longing for is when you would recognize that everything I have is already yours. You could have celebrated any time. They're your animals. But I'm never going to reward you when you're trying to work for what I've already given you because I'd reinforce a slave mindset. 
how do you relate to the Father in heaven? You know? He said, but when you, you can kill these animals and celebrate at any time you want. He said, now that's a party I would have come to. I've been longing for that day. Why? Because that's ownership and responsibility the right way. Because they're yours, son. It's all yours. I've already given it to you. Stop trying to earn what is yours. It's already yours. So, by God's grace, (laughs) I wanted to speak to you a little bit about moving. How do you move from religion to love? Oh, it's a powerful move. It's what the Western world needs to remember how to move from religion to love. To move from joylessness, an identity crisis, to supporting structures without life, to striving, to having lost the dream, to earning what's already yours. That's the religious world. And Paul was a man who was doing that exact thing. He was doing that exact thing. And I'm fascinated by the life of Paul because he moved from religion to a life of love. He genuinely did. Mark 7, it says this. I'm actually going to go to verse 4. It says, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things that they have received, and and they hold like the washing of cups, the pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, being Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat the bread with unwashed hands? And he said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And he's speaking about Isaiah 29, that's what he's quoting, where it says, you cannot teach the fear of God through the commandments of men. Jesus is saying, you're trying to teach the people the fear of God instead of understanding the heart of my Father. And he says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of men that you may keep your tradition. There was something called the tradition of the elders. It was actually all the extra-biblical stuff they had added to the law. All the extra-biblical stuff that was not in the scripture. And they became extremely passionate about that stuff beyond what God had said. It defined their religious system. It defined what they did, how they lived every day. It defined how they ate meals. It defined, they had added all the stuff because they were positioned. It built value around their position. And they treasured that so deeply in their hearts. To such a degree, religion had so clouded their mind that they couldn't see the one who they were supposed to identify. They were the religious leaders that God raised up John the Baptist. They knew the Bible off by heart. They were the ones who, would, who studied the coming Messiah. And when the Messiah stood in front of him, of them, his presence angered them. That's what religion can do. Instead of introduce you to relationship and to love. Now the funny thing is Paul was actually one of those men that Jesus was speaking about. Paul was a Pharisee, and he did that exact thing. And I'll prove it to you in Galatians chapter 1. It says this, verse 10. For I do not do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, meaning he used to, I would not be a bondservant of Christ, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, 
For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through revelation of Jesus, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say it again, not the revelation from Jesus, the revelation of a person. A personal revelation of who Jesus was, and suddenly I understood the gospel in purity and clarity. And he says, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. He now describes his former religious life. How I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. It's the same Greek phrase. Paul was zealous, extremely zealous, after all the things that gave him position and title. And yet to the church, he was like ISIS. He genuinely was. He was like a terrorist. Traveled around in groups, killing women, men, splitting up families. In the name of God. Because <laughs> religion had clouded his heart. You know what happens? God knocks him off his high horse in Acts chapter 9, literally. And asks him a question. Saul, Saul, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? It shows you how Jesus thinks about the way people treat his people, because it's his body. It's actually his body. He says, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? Who are you? The man who knew the Bible at that time, off by heart. Off by heart. He said, who are you? <laughs> who are you? I know you're Lord. Who are you? Lord. You're Lord, but I don't know who you are. And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Acts 9 doesn't say that. Acts 22. There's three times. Acts 9, 22, 26 that Paul tells his testimony. He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Not I am the Lord. Not I am the Messiah. I am the risen one. I am Jesus of Nazareth. Remember that guy from Nazareth that they killed and that you celebrated by killing Stephen? Yeah, I'm him. In that moment, friends, we have to understand he recognized something. I'm wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. I missed it. I've been wrong. I'm more learned. They said he was one of the most brilliant scholars of his entire generation. He was probably next in line of Gamaliel. He says, I was of the stock of Israel, meaning that he could trace his lineage all the way back to Jacob instead of Esau. He could trace it all. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Both his parents were Jews. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a favored tribe, the first king, and then also joined with Judah to reestablish Israel. He's, he has all the stuff, all the stuff. Missed it completely. All the stuff. He was a Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all there. And my father was a pastor, and then his father. It's all there. Who are you, God? Who are you? I don't know you. <laughs> Friends, Jesus, to see, to know him, to know him. So how do you move? How do we start to move from religion to love? Firstly, and we only get through a couple, humility. Genuine humility, not false humility. I'm so tired of false humility in the body of Christ. If you're good at something, that's great. Say you are. You know, that was done so well. No, it's not me, it's the Lord. Well, it wasn't that good. There's, there's, there's so much false humility. There genuinely is. You know, you know what false humility tells me? It tells me that you think if you say something, you can actually touch God's glory. Really? You think you're that strong? 
You're the chief of his creation. You're the masterpiece of his creation. <laughs> if we would value ourselves the way God values us, the world would be at a whole different place. And yet somehow religion creeps in and says, I cannot value myself, that's pride. No, it's not. It's what does he say you are? Who does he say you are? Where does he say you're going? What does he say you carry? Religion will tell you nothing. It's not me, it's not me. Yeah, I know it's the Lord, but he's in you. You're his hands and his feet and his mouth. Humility. Humility. <laughs> in Acts 9, you'll see if you go read it, Paul was healed. His stuff fell like off his eyes. He was healed. He was taught by. He was hosted by. The disciples he went there to kill, they were not nearly as learned or educated or skilled as he was, not even close. To him, they would have been similar to uneducated, untrained fishermen. Now, he's got to humble himself, sit in their house, and he was there to kill them and let them love him. And the love changed his heart. To be a man who was so gripped with zealousness for his religious position, to be one in 2 Corinthians 5 says, I'm compelled by love. What energizes me is no longer that stuff. I don't care. He actually says, I count all of it excrement. That's the word. Dung, useless, animal waste. All that stuff that I leaned on, my, my stock and my tribe and my education, all that stuff I leaned on to give me a leg up above another is nothing. And I consider it nothing because now I know him. I want to know him. I want to know him. Friends, he wants to know you. He wants you to know him. To know him, to, to love him, to hold him, to... It's not bringing him down. He loves you. He's your father. He's your dad. And Jesus opened the way. And religion clouds it. It clouds it terribly. Secondly, how do you move from religion to love? Doctrine. Doctrine. People say, oh, that sounds religious. No. Doctrine. Teaching. Theology. Because Paul had it all but he missed it. <laughs> and, I, and he writes to Timothy, I won't get into this now, but in 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy and he mentions doctrine a few times. What's he saying? It's his last letter before he died. He knew he was going to die. He said, Timothy, don't fall prey to what I fell prey to. Know the word of God, not all the traditions, not all the extra biblical stuff. Get rid of that stuff and get into this. Friends, this thing is precious. It's precious. Very precious to me. And yet you can read this with religion and it, it just confuses. I wrote it like this. Um, when doctrine becomes the focus, we fall back into religion. Why? Because religion makes an idol out of doctrine. Religion makes an idol out of it. I don't know if that son, second son ever went back in the house in the story. I don't know. But I do know this, that a divided house won't stand. Jesus said that in Matthew 12. So he's worked all his life so hard. He's worked all his life in the religious system. You know, he has this great inheritance. But by doing it that way, he's sealed the end of his inheritance because his house won't stand. As soon as the storm comes, everything he's built collapses. <laughs> everything falls apart. Because he didn't know his father. He didn't know his heart. So religion makes an idol out of doctrine, often at the expense of the one who gives the doctrine or at the expense of the ones he gave it for. So we end up with a divided house. Friends, this is self-evident across the world. Look at the church. How many denominations? 
How many different groups? How many different people? How many fights? How, how many? Same family. Same family, same father. God never, the church believes, religious believes, we have to have doctrinal agreement before we can sit down and be family. That's not true. Family is family. Yet God does desire maturity. He does, and it'll come from this. Ephesians 4, so it talks about doctrine, so that not you're tossed back and forth by every wind and wave of doctrine. Because you're just getting free from something and some person comes along and knows the Bible better than you and quotes a few verses out of context and you're like, oh, you know, he was right. I'm just, I'm just a nobody. You know? Religion always quotes half a verse. Always. Well, just work out your salvation and fear and trembling. Yeah, comma. For it is God who works in you to will and to act and to do. Kind of changes it. Doctrine. I I don't have time to get into that. We were going to read a whole bunch of scriptures. But friends, Paul, the word of God is so precious. But if if it wrecks you with guilt, something needs to change here first. And the word will do it. The word will change it. And lastly, believing the gospel. Because I could say, how do you move out of from religion to love? Prayer and worship and all those things are true. Those are the things I love, personally. But what I've found over the years, friends, and actually the best one is obedience. Just obey. But I've found obedience, prayer, worship, are all colored by how you think, by what you believe about who he is and what you think he thinks about you. That colors how you pray, colors how you worship. It changes it all. And so for the years, I've said it before, about 15 years ago, I asked myself, because I didn't know, I was insecure and broken and in the church, but I didn't, who is God, who am I, and what is the gospel for 15 years? Why? Because I need to be able to stand assured on truth so when all the religious little things come, I can say, no, that's not the truth. This is the truth, and I know it. We're not tossed back and forth by every wind and wave of doctrine. And he talks about being trained, being instructed in righteousness in 2 Timothy 3. So the third point is believing the gospel, being trained in righteousness. Actually believing the gospel. I'm going to give you one verse and explain it, then we'll be done. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him or in Christ Jesus. Who's he he made? Who's that? God the Father. He made him. Who's him? Jesus. Who knew no sin to be sin. Jesus was made something so that you can become something. You ever think about that? How did God make Jesus sin? Because he was definitely not a sinner. Because if he was a sinner, he couldn't hang on the cross as a spotless lamb and make atonement for your sin. So what does it mean when it says God made Jesus to become sin? What does that mean? I'll give it to you very plainly. The Father was treating him on the cross. The Father treated him as if he lived, as if he had sinned and done everything, every sin that had ever been done and ever been committed ever. He was treated like that. An easier way to say it is the Father treated him as if he lived my life. 
That's what it means. The father treated him as if he lived my life. <laughs> Why? So the father could treat me as if I lived his life. That's what it means. That's the gospel. He was treated as if he lived my life. So I could be treated as if I lived his life. Why? Well, because Jesus loves me. Yes, he does, but that's not what it says there. Of course he does. Why? Because God, the Father, God so loved the world that he sent his Son. For God loved the world. In Colossians it says, It's the Father who has qualified you to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. What is that inheritance? Eternal life. Eternal life. And now we know you cannot earn eternal life because the wages of sin is death. And the gift of God is eternal life. You cannot earn a gift. So what's, what's actually being said here? The Father sent his Son to live a perfect life so he could treat his Son as if he lived my life. <laughs> so that he could treat me as if I lived Jesus' life. So that he could in turn give us eternal life, which is a gift. And the same son defined eternal life as what? As knowing the Father. Very important. We think eternal life is living forever or going to heaven when you die. No. Eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, 3, For this is eternal life, that you may know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. So what does that mean? That you cannot get to know God through earning it. Even knowing God is a gift. It's eternal life, which is a gift. It's a gift. Religion will make you try to earn what you've already been given. The way has been opened. The Father sent His Son to live a perfect life, so He could treat the Son as if He lived my life, so He could treat me as if I lived His life. That's the gospel. Why? So that I may have received the gift of knowing him, building a relationship with him. But then God does desire to train his sons and develop them into mature sons because only a mature son can actually carry the weight of the glory of God throughout the earth. But how many of you know with training, and Paul talks a lot about training and righteousness, training as athletes, training in the armor of God, you cannot train someone who attaches the value to their training. See, in the business world, it's easy. You have performance reviews. Why? Because you want to close up all the gaps so that the profit margins increase and everybody benefits. They're very healthy. But a father and a son, a son never has a performance review. It's why sometimes people can flourish in the business world but struggle in their own home. Because those people in the business world don't tie their value to what you say. You're their boss. But between a father and a son, there's never a performance review. And any task that you're doing, and if you think it starts to be a performance review, the father has to stop the task immediately because we've lost the main point of the relationship with the father. We've lost it. And he says, stop the task. That suddenly becomes irrelevant. What's important is the relationship with my son. A whole different way of thinking. Let me just say this. God does desire to train, to equip, to bring through to maturity. But at times, you need to press people past what they thought they could do. Who's ever trained in the gym? No one. Okay. <laughs> you know, at times, your trainer has to press you past what you thought you could do. Okay. At times, you need to bring hard truth to people. Hard truth. 
But you cannot do that. You cannot bring those hard truths. You cannot push people past what they can if they think that their value is tied to it. You cannot because it will destroy the person. And sometimes we're crying out to God, God, use me, God, do this. And he says, son, I so desire to do that. When you tie your value to what I do through you, it ties my hands to answer that. Remember the lost coin on the first week? The parable of the lost coin? The lost coin did not change in value when it was lost. It was still the same amount. It was still valuable. It still did the same value. But it couldn't, but it's, it changes it could not adorn the bride because that was what the woman would wear. It could not adorn the bride unless it was added to the ten coins. We'll leave it there. I just, friends, God's heart, God's heart for you, the Father's heart, is do you not know that all I have is yours? And it takes humility to embrace what God is trying to reveal because sometimes it has to undo everything that we've thought about him. You know, it just takes humility to say, Lord, I want to learn you. I want to know you. Maybe you're going to change the way I've seen things, but I want to know you. And in his house, there's a massive space for failure and learning. It's okay because he's your father. He wants us to do that. He wants us to re rediscover the gospel. What is the gospel? He genuinely does. So that we're not tossed back and forth. Why? Because then we can carry glory. Not for us, for him. I hope that makes sense and I hope that helps you.